Morning, guys. Who stayed here last night? Most of you did. The rest of you got good sleep. <laughs> the cheaters I saw pull up this morning. Nothing like home. Isn't it weird how we, we want to get away and go on vacation and go somewhere and have a retreat? And then when you're there, you're like itching to get home. And you get home, you're like, ah, oh, I love home. It's just, it's bizarre, right? I got to get away. I got to get home. I think God made us that way in one sense, right? Home is good. It's where you relax and it's where you rest and we long for ultimate rest. Vacations sometimes are like, anyway, I'll stop theologizing. I have a great quote to start with this morning. As soon as I can find it. Love God. I don't love God. I hate God. Not said by an atheist, but said by Martin Luther. Probably with more passion knowing a few things about Martin Luther. Love God? I don't love God. I hate God. And with that, really, you have the launch of the Protestant Reformation. Why would that be? Why would that be a good thing for him to say that? It's not a good thing to hate God, right? But why would that actually be a good thing as far as a catalyst? Well, it would be a good thing because Martin Luther was told as a Roman Catholic monk and was taught that if he loved God and loved his neighbor and if he did it enough and adequately, then God would accept him. Okay, so there you are. Let's work hard. Let's do more. Let's try harder. And let's do God's law. Let's love God and love neighbor. He knew and he was told that's what he was supposed to do and God would accept him. So far, so good in a sense. But Martin Luther studied the Bible and he studied the Bible more and more and he studied books like Romans and he studied Galatians and he studied the Psalms, not to mention other things. And he's lecturing the Bible teaching people the Bible, and he's starting to see for himself how clear the Bible is about the righteousness of God. That God is perfectly, absolutely, inflexibly righteous. Okay, He's a just judge, and He's fair, and He gives people what they deserve. And the expectation from God is not do more, try harder, and if you try, I'll accept you. No, God in His righteousness, in His fairness, in His justice says, if you are righteous, absolutely righteous, then I'll be just and righteous and I will accept you. You see? So it's, it's a great turning point for Luther to actually see in the Bible that God is righteous, that God requires, and responsibly so, justly so, God requires that we love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so Luther's temporary conclusion is, I hate God. Right? The, the, the wall is unscalable for me, Martin Luther, because I am sinful. And now what happens? He then, by God's grace, sees his need for external righteousness. He sees his need for a substitute. He sees his need for Jesus Christ, as the Bible says, the righteous. Oh, Jesus Christ, the law keeper. And, and to trust in Him and only in Him as His 
head, his representative, his substitute, and now we have gospel grace. So it's a great lesson as far as we have to see God for who he is, even if it means we, we temporarily see God as someone we would despise so that we can see our need for Christ and believe the gospel. The problem was a law gospel blurring. Okay, You can do more, try harder, and we'll call that gospel because God's going to help you and Jesus is involved and we'll call it gospel, but it's not gospel. It's not law either. And when you combine law and gospel, you ruin both. Okay, We need to keep the law the law and the gospel the gospel. They're not enemies, they're actually friends. Because one should lead us to the other. Follow me? And that's what we're talking about. I think one great word that summarizes humanity's greatest need, and it's a word we don't even know, generally speaking, and that word is righteous. Okay, It's righteousness. It's all over in our Bibles. We'll talk more about it in detail. But right now I want to look at it in Romans 10. But we, we have to understand that, that God is righteous. That means He's just. He's fair. He's a judge. He requires righteousness. It's not wrong for Him to do that. It's right for Him to do that. He's just act, asking us to be reasonable, to treat Him like He's God, and to act like human beings made in His image. And so we've, we've got to get that. And, and a lot of times we don't get that. And I want to make sure that we at least are, are having right categories. And Romans chapter 10 is a great passage to look at to kind of warm up to Romans 10 to get us there. Maybe to support what I'm saying about righteousness, let me just read some texts. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge. Okay? Therefore, He requires righteousness. Put negatively from Romans 1.18, His wrath, the righteous judge's wrath, His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His wrath is against unrighteousness. His wrath is against lawbreakers and lawbreaking. Romans 1.18. And given humanity's universal lack of righteousness, Romans 3.10, in my words, were universally sunk. Okay, but it's all about righteousness. Paul says in Romans 2.5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, same theme, for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We've got to get this righteousness thing. We've got to grasp it. got to understand it. That God requires perfect obedience. And therefore, we'll see our sin. Therefore, we'll see our need for Christ. Pretty straightforward. Okay. We know Romans 1-5 to deals with this issue, but we oftentimes think he's over and done with it, and he's not. He still talks about it in 9, 10, and 11. He's talking about Israel then, but he wants Israel to be saved. He wants them to be justified. And so, how about Romans 10, verse 5? Romans 10, 5. For, you getting it? By, by the way, what we're going to do is brief lesson in Romans 10, okay? And then we're going to talk about key words like righteousness. I've got a handful. And then we're going to look at a few objections, a handful of objections to this whole law gospel thing as it would relate to this. Then we'll take a break. And then we do a Q&A. Um, and then we do a final session. So that's kind of... Sound okay? At least I have it straight in my mind now. Alright, so Romans 10.5 is a key passage in this whole issue as it is a debate. Verse 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
I hope that last part kind of sounds familiar if you were here last night. If you weren't here, let me bring you up to speed. Okay, if you were here, I'm glad to see some of you are saying, that sounds familiar. Oh, the, per, the, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Remember we talked about the do this and live principle? We heard it from Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And here we see it coming from Paul. So it, it, it's, it's alive and well. Okay, but before we actually dive into that a little bit more, it probably is no surprise to us when we look at that verse that it says Moses writes about righteousness is based on the law. That's not a surprise. Because we tend to think Moses' law, right? Erroneously, we think Moses' law, Jesus, no law. Okay, we're, and we've been discussing that kind of thing. But we, we naturally think Moses is associated with the law, and that's good to think that way. But what's interesting is in our text here, Paul is quoting Moses, right? He absolutely is referencing Moses. He's, he's adopting the same reality himself. Okay? The person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's utilizing what Moses says in Leviticus 18.5. He's referencing Leviticus 18.5. And we learned last night that Jesus is on the same team also. So we think, oh, that's for Moses, but it's not for Paul. It's not for Jesus. Actually, they all reference it. Do this and live. Okay? Righteousness. If you obey God's law, God will give you life. And so we're seeing it here again with Paul and not just with Jesus or not just with Moses. It's right here. If you obey God's law, you will have life. An objection to that is he's not talking about eternal life. We talked about that last night. And even with Paul, they say he's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about temporal life. The problem with that ends up being Paul's talking about eternal life in context with the Jews being saved, he says, in our context. Not only that, Jesus clearly makes it about eternal life. And so we have to keep that in mind also. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, we looked at last night for those of you guys who weren't here. Now this is a problem, right? This is review. This is a problem because... Like it was for Luther, God requires doing this, doing the law, obeying God, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that will lead to life. We're lawbreakers to begin with. That's a huge problem. Okay? So we need external righteousness. We need a substitute. We need a federal head, Romans chapter 5. And we have that. In Christ. I'm trying to decide what I want to cut, where I want to go, where I don't want to go. One Old Testament scholar, who I won't name, says this can't be eternal life. And I commend him for saying that. It can't be eternal life because we know that salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even in the Old Testament. And I'm like, awesome. Super glad he says that. Okay? Salvation has always been by grace. Romans 4 teaches us that. It's only ever been by grace. It's only ever through faith. Okay? So I love it that he says, we know Leviticus 18 is not talking about gaining eternal life because that would be work salvation. 
And then he goes to Romans 10 and says, has a pretty amazing argument. He's not talking about eternal life there either. Well, he's talking about the salvation of the Jews, so I actually think he is talking about it because he's talking about salvation. You go, this is, this is interesting what he's trying to do. Let's preserve salvation always being by grace. But you do that at the expense of making the law say something less than it says. So it's a foul, okay? It's a foul. Plus, in his argument, in his journal article that he, that he offers... He never, ever hints at or says anything about Luke chapter 10, where Jesus references Leviticus 18 and says the same thing. Do this and live. And he's talking to the lawyer who says, what must I do to gain eternal life? So again, let's let the law be unscalable. Let's let God be absolutely inflexibly righteous. And for God to say, if you do this, you'll live. And then we go, we're smoked. We can't. It's exactly where you need to be, right? It just comes back to that same issue. Then therefore, we need a substitute. And I realize that you probably are thinking, this is, this is like Sunday school basics for little kids. But it, it's a hot topic, okay? That the people that you, we would read and respect and the people we read and respect read these other people and they're coming to weird conclusions about law and law is actually not absolute and therefore... We get ourselves in trouble about the work of Jesus because somehow law is doable because it's not talking about eternal life. So, so it's a big deal to me and I want it to be a big deal to you and at least go, my convictions are steepened all the more about these issues. Now, maybe another passage that's used as an objection would be Galatians 2. Maybe you should go ahead and turn to Galatians 2. Then we'll come back to Romans. But Galatians 2 says, and this is used by that Old Testament scholar as well, to prove that it can't be saying, do this and gain eternal life. Galatians 2.16 says that a person is justified by works of the law. Does Romans 2.16 say you're justified by works of the law? What does it say? What's that? You're not justified by works of the law. You go, so much for all the other stuff we've heard all weekend. He keeps saying we're justified by works of the law because do this and live and you'll gain eternal life. And here clearly the Bible says you're not justified by works of the law. So we have a contradiction and Paul is, you know, delusional and he forgot what he said somewhere else. Or... We should have nothing to do with law because no one is justified by works of the law. Or, or what do we have? And I'm suggesting to you that we don't have a contradiction. We don't have a war within Paul's mind or brain or with the Bible. What we have is to make it very, very clear that no sinner... Is Paul writing to sinners in Galatia? Yeah, every single one of them. That no sinner could ever possibly ever be justified by works of the law. It can't be. No one in this room, no one other than Jesus, first Adam too, before the fall, could this 
work for, if you will. But in principle, it's still true. Do this and live. That principle will always be true. If you do the right thing perfectly, God will accept you. Okay? Jesus believes it to be so. He says it in Luke chapter 10. Paul believes it to be so. He says it in Romans chapter 10. Okay? Moses believes it to be so because he says it in Leviticus 18. But if I come to you and I come to your life and say, okay, do these things and God will justify you. It's not true. And the Galatians are starting to believe that because they're sinners. And it can't be true for them. The argument in Galatians is that being they need imputed righteousness. They need the credited righteousness. They need Christ's righteousness. But what I'm, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I don't want you to be confused and just believe the next person with the next Bible verse. Read the whole Read the whole argument. Be well informed by the whole. It doesn't hurt to hear other people who've already had this argument before so you can learn something from it. But go, in principle, it is true and it's always true. If you're perfect, God will accept you. The problem is it's a short line. There's nobody in that line other than Christ. And so we need His righteousness. You see? There are people at Omaha Bible Church, at your church, that if they heard much of what I'm saying, they would go to a text like Galatians 2 and say, Pat Abendroth does not know what he's talking about. See Galatians chapter 2. Just pleading with you in your sphere of influence to read the Bible holistically, big picture wise, and understand this isn't a contradiction. This actually is what's right and true. If you do this, you'll live. You can't. So you need Christ. And so no one will be justified by the works of the law. I mean, this is kind of basics. This is kind of basic, basic Protestantism. But sometimes we come from a background where these, these ways of saying things aren't used to us, what we're used to. And so we kind of panic. Um, someone was just telling me last night, their uh, relative was visiting uh, Mike Holloway Sunday school class on Sunday, and he said something about um, Jesus earned salvation for us, you know. And and his relative was, you know, what, what's a good way to say it? Flipping a wig. I mean, <laughs> he was like freaking out. Like uh, this evangelical's like, Whoa. salvation isn't by works. There's no possible. way. Jesus didn't earn anything for us because nobody could earn anything because salvation is by grace. We just aren't used to hearing things certain ways and we kind of freak out about it and we go for the closest Bible verse to prove it to be wrong without thinking. Let's think about this. So it was good to talk last night and talk about one act of obedience, right? I mean, even in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus most certainly earned salvation for us. He did this, okay, so we could live. But we're just, we're so not used to talking in these terms. We don't even know what righteousness is. We don't know what law is. Whatever it is, it's bad. And so the weekend for me is saying, guys, let's be aware of the issues. Let's, let's read our Bibles better. Let's think this issue through. Let's be informed. Do this and live as good and right. It just causes us to hate God apart from Christ. <laughs> but it does really show us our need for Christ. Well, maybe we should at least look at some of the other verses that are surrounding our text. 
I'm glad this isn't a candidating sermon because I would never get hired to be the pastor, but (laughs) too many notes. How about go back to Romans chapter 10 and just see the surrounding kinds of texts. Um, Romans 9 beforehand would be helpful. Romans 9.30. Romans 9.30 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Okay, so he's saying... The Gentiles, the Gentiles got saved. Okay? They got saved and they didn't have the law. They, 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 they didn't have the, the law inscripturated. Okay? They did have it on their hearts according to Romans chapter 2. But they got saved and you'd think the Jews would get saved. They weren't pursuing it and yet they have obtained it because they've obtained it by faith. Context would be faith in Christ. Verse 31, But that Israel who pursued a law... I mean, they're all about law. They talk about law all the time. That would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, what Paul's not, not doing is criticizing them for, for wanting to have righteousness. They actually need to be wanting to have righteousness. Okay? That's, that's not being criticized. Oh, those dumb Jews, they were pursuing righteousness. No! But we sometimes read our Bibles that way. No, that's, that's good and right, and you, you better have righteousness. So that's not the critique. The critique ends up being that they don't realize that they're so sinful that they themselves can't do it and see perfect righteousness outside of them and in Christ. How about verse 32? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Context of faith in Christ. But as if it were based on works. And we know, according to context, their works. They thought that they could do it. It Never mind the fact that they're sinful and their Bible teaches them that. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Talking about Jesus. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. I think it's just critical that we read those verses and go, Oh, I I, I need to read this. I don't want to say differently, but with, without an agenda against righteousness. Just knowing that that means law-keeping. And that law says, love God and keep His commandments. That, that's not bad. That's good. But when you don't see yourself as sinful and corrupt, it's a problem because you think you can do it, and you don't really need Jesus. External righteousness. You follow me? And this is, I think, super basic. Then how about Romans 10 again? Um, Let's go to Romans 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is going to be interesting. This makes me think about Luther. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That was Luther before, when he thought he could do it. And all of a sudden you see God is inflexibly righteous. Ignorance ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In Christ is what he's talking about. God's provision of righteousness. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's awesome. It's so clear and it's so amazing. And it's what we've been talking about. 
So they didn't see God for His absolute righteousness. They forgot, they failed to see that God says and means, do this and live. Do it perfectly and live. Well, you know, God grades on a curve and, you know, God got blurry. Failing to see God's righteousness, perfect standard, unscalable wall for people who have chopped their own legs off. Right? People who are sinful. And they thought they could do it. And so they didn't see Jesus for who He was, the fulfiller of all righteousness. Righteousness for those who believe when Jesus came. So the point of all this being, Paul pleads for their salvation. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to see Jesus as the righteousness that they need. And apart from doing that, they're not going to be saved. So again, don't read your Bible like righteousness is bad. That would be like reading the Bible thinking God is bad and love is bad. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But again, our only category in our culture tends to be righteousness is what we say with the word self-righteousness. No, it's super important that we understand righteousness. It's vital that we understand righteousness. Okay. Yes? Make, does it make sense? Okay. A few words you have to know. Okay? Let, let's do this next. Some words you have to know. I've already said one. One is righteousness. If you know what the word righteousness means and righteous means, you are going to be a better Bible reader. And I think everyone in the room knows. Okay? It's a law word. It's a justice word it's a fairness word god is righteous okay it's different from holy i mentioned this a couple sundays ago holy means he's different okay and you could say holy means sinless because he's different but holy is just different he's the creator we're the creatures so god is different from us okay he's holy unique righteous is he's a judge okay it's a judge word. Now it becomes vital that we know that righteous, okay, fair, just. That becomes vital because then another word you have to know if you're going to understand Christianity is justification, right? Well, it comes from the same word. To be justified, therefore having been justified if we have peace with God, Romans chapter 5, is to be declared what? To be declared righteous. Oh, okay. So for us to understand justification, we have to understand righteousness. But what is righteousness? Righteousness has to do with God being just, the judge. Okay? It's always in relationship to law. And so if you're declared righteous, okay? I'll pick on Mark. If Mark is declared righteous, front row, man. <laughs> Mark was looking sleepy, so I was going to call him out. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, so if Mark is justified according to God's grace. It means he's declared what? Righteous. That means he's declared a law what? A law keeper. That's what that means. And that means he is declared to be someone who has loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself, if you want to summarize it even though we know that that's not true about Mark, okay? Even though he's unrighteous because no one is righteous, no, not one, Romans chapter 3. But we need justification. Justification is so important. That's why John Calvin said it's, it's the hinge on which the door turns. Uh, that's why Martin Luther said it's the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. We could go on and on with famous quotes. 
but it's so vital because it has to do with your right standing before the judge. You need righteousness. The problem is you don't have righteousness. And to be righteous and to have righteousness, you have to do this. Do this and live. And you don't and you haven't and you can't because you're in Adam. You need external righteousness. So when you believe in Jesus, His righteousness is credited to you. Now Mark has credited righteousness, not inherent righteousness. It doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It's credited to Mark. And now God can look at Mark, the sinner, the lawbreaker, and declare him a law keeper based upon the real work of Jesus. I mean, this is so crucial and so vital. And therefore, Mark doesn't, like we talked about last night, have to be traumatized. He can rest in Christ. Okay, Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. His work is done. But His work is done. Christ fulfilled the law. Okay, So it's vital that we understand righteousness. Be on a crusade. Crusade is a bad word, by the way. Uh, <laughs> right? A mission. To help people understand what that means. Because if you don't understand what that means, you don't understand what justification means. You don't understand so many things. It's crucial that we get at least those two words. Maybe just some passages you can write down. Romans 2.15 says the law of God is written on our hearts as Gentiles. So everyone has law, not just Jews. Even when you look at Romans 5, and you have the two Adams. Well, the first Adam wasn't under the Mosaic law. Okay, So sometimes people want to say, he had nothing to do with law. That doesn't make any sense. If you just read Romans 5, I won't ask you to do it right now, but it's filled with law words. Romans 5, law is present, even if it's not Mosaic law, because you have language like trespass. That's a law word. Trespass comes in 15, 16, 17, and 18. You have the word in 16, judgment. That's a law word. Okay? You have justification. That's a law word in verse 16 and 18. You have righteousness. Ah, that's a law word in verse 17, 18, and 19. In verse 18, you have the word condemnation. That's a law word. Verse 19, disobedience. Well, that's a law word as well. Verse 19, obedience. That's a law word also. And not only that, in verse 12 of Romans 5, you have the word sin. And the word sin, according to 1 John, is lawlessness. So you don't have to have the exact word to have the reality there. Okay, You have to know that. That's just like basic Bible interpretation. So just remember that. Speaking of that, another word you need to know is sin. I already went there. Okay, 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Two good commentaries I read recently. Thankfully, I had a third one that was older to help me. Two good exegetical commentaries I read recently in good series. Both said something along these lines. Do I have the exact quote here? Well, something. No, I don't have the exact quote. Um, that lawlessness has nothing to do with the law. I mean, sorry the crassness, but it's like, uh, do you think I'm on drugs? I'm not on drugs. You're going to tell me lawlessness has nothing to do with the law? 
you're assuming that I'm intoxicated. Lawlessness has nothing to do with the law. You say, what? These are the commentaries that if you came to me and said, I'm going to teach a Bible study, they're the kind I would give to you because they're a credible series. But then you look into their background and you look where guys are coming from and they're coming from backgrounds, at least one of them for sure. They don't like law gospel distinctions. They don't like do this and live principle of law. There's a blurring of the two. Okay? So there's already that theological agenda in mind. So they don't want us in the New Testament specifically to have any relationship whatsoever to law. And so you say weird things like law has nothing to do with lawlessness. And you go, what in the world? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. So again, that's why I get motivated and exercised about this kind of thing and say, you know what? Make sure you read your Bibles better than you read commentaries. You know, one of my professors used to say in seminary, it's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. Right? And you go, duh. So then I looked up, an old, I, I used an older commentator before some of these debates were going on. And sure enough, guess what lawlessness means? It has something to do with the law. <laughs> and you're like, duh. But we have this law phobia. But if you have this law phobia, you're never going to really get the gospel. Let the law be the law in all of its glory with all of its magnitude and it does condemn you so that you can see Jesus for all of His greatness and all of His grace and all of His mighty power to fulfill the law for you. That's what I'm pleading. Any other words we need to do right now? No, no other words for right now. We talked about justification. Okay, some objections. I've got a list of five. First objection, there are more. We have a Q&A, so you can give all your objections to the elders of the church. <laughs> One objection would be, we're not under law, but under grace. We're not under law, but we're under grace. Well, that's what Romans chapter 6 says. We're not under law, but we're under grace. So that's a pretty good objection. If you can talk about what you mean by that and what Paul means by that. Does Paul really mean we have nothing to do with the law whatsoever in any way, shape, or form? No! He, he doesn't mean that because he just got done talking about for five chapters how important justification is. How important being declared a lawkeeper is. So surely he doesn't just drive the car in the ditch in chapter 6 and say, well, we're not under law, we're, not, we're under grace, meaning we have nothing whatsoever to do with the law then justification wouldn't actually make sense. Because that means to be declared a law keeper. We're not under law, but we're under grace. Hmm, what might he mean? We're not under law as it would relate to our being justified by our works, right? That's, that needs to be emphasized. That needs to be stressed. That's huge and crucial. We're not under law. We're under grace. As we relate to God, we're not on the treadmill. Okay? <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> right? It's based upon the work of Christ. Okay? Free to us. It cost Him greatly, but it's free to us. Free gift. We're not under law for justification. We're under grace. So it's crucial that we believe that. 
But don't isolate passages without thinking in context. Thinking clearly. And remember, we are to love, which is law. Right? Even Jesus says, how will they know you're my disciples? If you love one another. If you do law. Right? Out of gratitude. Not out of attempts to justify yourself. But we're we're under law in that sense because Jesus says you're supposed to love. So again, it's it's a false choice. Okay, one one writer I really enjoy reading helped me. He uses that a lot, and that's helpful to me. It's a false choice. Don't make me make a false choice. Okay. Okay. How about another objection? Two law is for Old Testament Israel, not the church. Well, I think you guys could even deal with that by now. Again, if you reread Luke 10, when Jesus affirms the man who summarizes the laws, love God and love neighbor, that's transtestamental. Okay? Summary of the law, that's true in the old, that's true in the new, it'll always be true. It's not either or. Not to mention you have Romans chapter 2, the law is written on the heart of the Gentile. It's, no, or it's not just Mosaic law we're talking about. Law has always been there since there have been human beings it's been written on their hearts. New Testament, we talked about it last night, children obey your parents. Well, that's law. That's a command from God. That's New Testament. Law is always relevant. The good old question, what do you mean, is helpful. Are we under law? Are we under grace? Is law Old Testament, New Testament? Well, what do you mean? Do you mean the nationalistic law when it comes to Israel and all the things they're supposed to be as a unique nation? Levitical law? Yeah, that's not for us. But do you mean we're not supposed to love God anymore? (laughs) No, excuse me. That would be a foul. Just ask good questions. Okay, number three. The Old Testament was a law-based system Whereas the New Testament is a grace-based system. Basically, that was the same as objection number two. Law-based system, grace-based system. But I mean something a little bit differently by it. Answer the objection super quickly, super easily with Romans 4. Right? Abraham was justified by works. Justified by faith. David, justified by faith. Okay, so you have grace in the old, grace in the new, law in the old, law in the new. We might have to pose the question, what do we mean, so that we can get to the bottom of things. But to draw the distinction is is what leads to confusion, okay? Dispensationalism hasn't helped with this, okay? If you believe in seven dispensations, even if those dispensations are true, okay? I'm not even arguing that point. But when you have a dispensation called the dispensation of law, and then you have another dispensation, the next one, I think, called the dispensation of grace. Even if the original constructors of that meant right things, not even arguing about that, it's confusing to the followers of the movement. Because we're not under the dispensation of law. We're under the dispensation of grace. 
And so lots of people who followed those founders have been confused, even if the original founders didn't mean it, confused about Old Testament being by works, by law-keeping. And then you have New Testament, it's by grace, and it has nothing to do with law. It's just confusing, super confusing. And one bit of confusion leads to another bit of confusion. And where we end up getting ourselves in trouble, guys, is we get ourselves in trouble with the doctrine of justification again. Because if it's keeping the law in the old, that's a problem, okay, for justification. Or if it has nothing to do with the law in the new, that's a problem for justification, okay? And then we get into all kinds of weird views about imputation and weird views about justification. I was doing a little bit of research for a paper that I'm writing, and I started looking into the writings of Darby, okay? The, the, the founder of dispensationalism. And Darby wants nothing whatsoever to do with law being relevant today. Okay? No, no, no law for Christians' relationship whatsoever. Okay? Darby, uh, the brethren founder. Okay? So, when he gets to the doctrine of justification... He doesn't, he rejects wholeheartedly Christ's law-keeping, Christ's righteousness being credited to us. Okay? He, he, he has no room for Christ's righteousness, Christ's law-keeping, Christ's obedience being credited to us for justification. He can't have it because he has no law. We don't, Christians aren't related to the law in any way, shape, or form because that was a different dispensation. And so what he has to do, because he wants to believe in justification, is he has to say, or he doesn't have to, but he does, he says that Christ's divine attribute is credited to us. Again, he assumes we're intoxicated. Not to mention ignorant of history, because that's an old heresy that John Owen dealt with. We don't become gods. We don't have a divine attribute credited to us. Okay? We have Christ's righteousness as the law keeper credited to us. But ideas have consequences, as people like to say. And you go, that is a problem. I, I thought that was a new thing. That goes back to Darby and the brethren thing. So when we're trying to deal with you know, the, the professor at Master Seminary who's teaching that exact same thing before, thankfully, he got fired for teaching it, thought it was a new view. Oh, it's not a new view. It's a Darby view. It's a brethren view. Oh, that professor that got fired? His mentors and his professors were brethren guys. They said they're biblicists and they only believe the Bible. But when you find out what the heretical view is, oh, guess what? The founder of the movement believed that. That's a Darby view. Spurgeon, by the way, had no toleration in his day for Darby and Darbyites because of this issue, because it undermines the doctrine of sola fide, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've got to keep the law category. Because if you don't keep the law category, you're going to mess up the gospel category. And you're going to be confused about justification. So let's just let both of them be and work together as they should work together. But be clear-headed about it. I've got Darby quotes here. I won't take the time to read Darby quotes, but if you want any of that kind of stuff, I'll give it to you. It's just absolutely bizarre. 
Four, fourth objection, the Bible never teaches that law-keeping is the key to justification. Well, that's a common one. And Leviticus 18 says otherwise. And if you don't think that's what it means in Leviticus 18, then Romans 10 helps. And if you don't think Romans 10 means that either, Jesus really helps in Luke chapter 10. Okay, next objection. Finally, I promise. An emphasis on law leads to legalism. Think about that, guys. An emphasis on law leads to legalism. That's going to be a pretty common objection. I'm going to suggest to you that when you don't have a clear view of law, you're going to be prone to legalism. It's actually the exact opposite. And you're going to start saying things like, final justification is based upon faith and works. That's legalism. That's raw legalism. What a good cure for legalism is going to be, this is what God's law says, and we cannot obtain it. It's impossible to obtain it. We need Christ who obtained it for us. And so we're not under, under law, but under grace for justification. Legalism answered, solved, taken care of. So... I'm suggesting to you that actual what's going to lead to legalism is if we don't have a good, healthy, robust, clear view of law. It's the exact opposite. And even in the things we've been talking about as far as the Bible has so many commands, has so many ways of telling you to love God, it has so many ways of telling you to love neighbor, it has so much emphasis on law that if you don't know that you can't measure up to that and you need Christ to meet your obligations for you for justification, you're going to start thinking you can do those things. And I want you to know that you can't, so you need Jesus who did for you, and so God can declare you righteous, and now you have a new desire, and you're united to Christ, and you have fruitfulness in your life because you've been engrafted in, if you will. You've been joined to to, to the vine, and now there's life. And now the law isn't for condemnation because, it, because it's not for justification. It's actually your expression of genuine life-wrought obedience. I want to do this because I belong because of what Christ did. It's the gratitude thing. And it's not just gratitude. It's actually something that the Spirit produces in your life. It's, it's new life. Okay? It's awesome. It's awesome. We'll, t- we'll talk more about this. Um, we'll work through more issues. Hang in there. I hope you're at least motivated to understand the issues and the differences better. Um, I should pray and we should take a break, right? Okay. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for our time. Thank you for that I get to be a pastor. Um, I'm super thankful. And I'm super thankful for the way you bring the truth to bear in our lives. I'm glad that you give us, you're patient with us. Uh, We get to learn things. I know I've confused law and gospel so much in my life. I'm thankful for patience from you. I'm thankful for patience with others or from others. And I would suspect that lots of other men in this room could be guilty and are guilty of the same kind of thing. And if so, God, together we confess it to you and acknowledge it before you that we have not seen Jesus for the great Savior that He is. And we've not seen our sin for how awful it is. And we've not seen you for your perfect righteousness, that is. 
So thank you. Thank you for your patience and thank you for your grace and for your mercy and, and help us to understand these things so that we might understand the Christian life and we might understand the Bible and we might understand what it means to worship you and what it means to see Jesus as our perfect representative and that it would show up in the way we live and it would motivate us. It would motivate us to want to love you and to love other people because it's not for our salvation. It's because of our salvation and that it really would change everything for us. In Jesus' name, amen.